0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk.
1: The Board of Directors of the Security Bank of Manhattan has chosen you as the architect for our new building. My congratulations, Mr. Lord.
0: Can a building express a political viewpoint?
1: Of course, we wouldn't alter your plans in any way. It's the brilliant ingenuity of your plans that sold us on the building. But its appearance is not of any known style. The public wouldn't like it.
2: If you build your own home on your own plot of land, what's political about that?
1: Now there's a touch of the new and a touch of the old so it's sure to please everybody. The middle of the road. Why take chances when you can stay in the middle?
2: How can we separate a building's aesthetics from its politics?
1: A building has integrity, just like a man, and just as seldom.
3: Can architecture be political? Architecture structures the way in which we live.
0: Our guest is Vladimir Kulich from Iowa State University. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk.
2: Stay up to date with the program and get our monthly newsletter by texting the word philosophy to 22828.
0: That's 22828. And to get our weekly podcast, become a partner at our community of thinkers.
2: Thank you for listening.
0: And thank you for thinking.
2: What can architecture tell us about the politics of its makers does the shape of a prison
0: express the opinions of the state can't a flying buttress just be a flying buttress welcome to philosophy talk the program that questions everything except your intelligence i'm josh landy and i'm ray briggs we're coming to you via the studios of kalw san francisco bay area
2: continuing conversations that begin at philosophers corner on the stanford campus where ray teaches philosophy And I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative.
0: Today's episode is generously sponsored by the Stanford Global Studies Program. And we're asking, can architecture be political?
2: Of course it can be political.
0: It's always political.
2: Think about all those monuments to fallen soldiers or city hall buildings or public
0: housing. Politics is everywhere. Okay, it's sometimes political. But isn't it sometimes just, you know pretty buildings? I don't know. Those
2: pretty buildings didn't just pop out of the ground. Somebody built them. And so they express
0: that person's values. Yeah, sure, they express values. But why do those values have to be political? Maybe it's a Frank Lloyd Wright and it's communicating to us about the beauty of nature. What's political about that?
2: I'll tell you what's political about that. It's that you got to own a Frank Lloyd Wright. Which means that you've got a few bucks to throw around and, hey, maybe you want the passersby to admire you for living in your designer castle.
0: Ah, but that's not what the architecture is saying. You're just talking about the conditions that make it possible to buy a house like that in the first place. The politics isn't just about
2: buying the house, it's about building the house. I mean, if there weren't any rich people out there to throw money around, there wouldn't be any Frank Lloyd Wrights.
0: What are you talking about? It's easy to imagine a world where just everybody gets a nice house. You know, nature lovers get garden houses. Tech lovers get all the mod cons. People with a fear of heights get bungalows. In that world, there's nothing at all political about living in a Frank Lloyd Wright. OK, sure, in that lovely world. But
2: hey, Ray, come on. That's not the world we're living in. In our world, every architectural style makes a clear political statement. Oh uh, Yeah, like what? Well, think of all that neoclassical architecture that imperialists love so much. Impressive columns, massive ceilings, huge steps from which the deer leader could deliver a speech down to the serried masses of the hoi polloi. Very different from a congressional debate chamber, right? In a congressional debate chamber, everyone's literally on the same level.
0: That's democracy, loud and clear. Wait, wait, Josh. You just said columns are imperialist, but think about those lovely Ionic columns at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. The designers of those columns chose them specifically to represent democratic values. They're supposed to remind us of ancient Athens. Well, I
2: didn't say that political meaning is always the same. It can change over time. But whether it's imperialism or democracy, buildings always represent some political value. Ugh,
0: by that logic, everything is political. Birds, bananas, bottle caps. Is there nothing that isn't making a statement in your worldview? Well, I, maybe bottle caps, but not birds.
2: Buildings aren't like birds. They're designed by people. They, they involve tons of money-changing hands, and they sit in the same place for decades or centuries, taking up space. A single building can affect the lives of millions.
0: Okay, that's true of a city hall or a sports stadium, but what about a little cottage at the end of a cul-de-sac? That's just a cute little place for someone to retire to and write the great American novel. It affects the lives of, what, maybe dozens? Okay, but what's your little
2: cute cottage made of? Maybe it's full of lead paint and asbestos. Maybe it's made from wood taken from an old-growth forest. Maybe it's super energy inefficient and contributing to climate change. You can't escape, Ray. Politics is going to find you
0: even at the end of your cul-de-sac. Aw, it doesn't have to be like that. You can build your cottage out of sustainable materials, and, and you can build it well. And at that point, it's just a great place to live. End of story. So no, you have not convinced me that architecture is always political. Well,
2: maybe our guest will convince
0: you. It's Vladimir
2: Coolidge, professor of architecture at Iowa State University.
0: And maybe our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed will help us think about what it really takes for architecture to express different political values, whether those values are love of authority or love of nature. She files this report.
4: In recent years, Republicans in Congress have pushed to mandate a single style of architecture in Washington.
3: High atop the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, stands one of the most magnificent and most aesthetically pleasing structures in the world, the Parthenon.
4: Under a proposal called the Beautifying Federal Civic Architecture Act, architects who designed federal buildings would be asked to use principles from Greek and Roman antiquity.
1: The design, the spacing of each stone is so perfect that it inspires just to look at. The proportions are so exact. For a large building, it is an amazing thing. And it lifts the spirit upward.
4: In 2020, former President Donald Trump also drafted an executive order titled Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again. He's not alone in his fondness for Greek and Roman architecture. The alt-right corners of the Internet are all about seeing Spartan culture as the hallmark of Western civilization. I
5: think, you know, when you get nostalgia, you start to get political ideologies in
4: disguise. Hadas Steiner is a professor of architectural history and theory at SUNY Buffalo. She often asks her students whether they think architecture is political, and their responses tend to change with the times. But from her perspective... I think that architecture is inherently political because it engages with
5: social, political, and cultural constructs.
4: That's even true of deconstructivist architecture of the 1980s and 90s that promoted the absence of harmony or symmetry. But Steiner says architects can't hide from politics.
5: Like the old adage, like to be apolitical is also to be political. And the deconstructionist movement was highly politicized in its desire for neutrality and to disassociate itself, actually, from more right-wing politics in deconstruction and literature.
4: Architecture that expresses a set of political values doesn't have to be a bad thing. Architecture that tries not to destroy the planet is good. You can find all sorts of examples of sustainable design, which is about reducing harm to the environment. Buildings made out of mud rather than steel or concrete. Places like Basel, Switzerland, where green spaces are mandatory on new buildings with flat roofs. A nonprofit in Norfolk, Virginia deliberately built their headquarters on a floodplain that's expected to be submerged in the coming decades because of rising tides. 13 News Now, a local station, reported on that.
0: Instead of trying to fight the floods, it'll welcome them, allowing for space to flow underneath. It'll have features like a special stormwater roof that'll collect and store rainwater to be reused in ways inside. It'll be able to sustain higher winds. Also, it's good for wildlife in the area. They're incorporated into the plan.
4: The nonprofit has agreed to demolish the building and leave once the water takes over. SUNY Buffalo's Hadass Steiner says architects are paying attention to social movements and expanding the definition of architecture.
5: If you can open up the the way we use the environment, right, architecture to the, all the ways we use the environment and the new technologies that enable those things, I think we can see optimism for the future.
4: Back at the U.S. Capitol, there's that push to go back to ancient Greek architecture. But another kind of movement is also underway. Washington appears to be rolling out clean energy rules adopted almost two decades ago. President George W. Bush had passed a law that included a mandate that new federal buildings be free of fossil fuels by 2030. So there's still time for the architects to get to work on that before the political tide turns again and we end up back in ancient Athens.
2: How? Were the ancient Greeks able to build something that looks so perfect? For
4: Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDede.
2: Thanks for that fascinating report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy, and with me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs.
0: Today we're asking, can architecture be political? We're joined now by Vladimir Kulich. He's professor of architecture in the College of Design at Iowa State University, and he's editor of Toward a Concrete Utopia, Architecture in Yugoslavia 1948-1980, to which is based on an exhibition he helped curate at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Vladimir, welcome to Philosophy Talk.
2: Thank you for having me. So, Vladimir, you started your career as an architect, uh, but then you went on to become a historian of architecture. Now, of course, I've got nothing against the academy, but why did you choose to make that shift?
3: Uh, well, I lived through a complete collapse of uh, society. Socialist Yugoslavia, as you may remember, uh, was destroyed in a series of wars uh, in the 1990s. I was in my 20s uh, as a student and young architect. As you can imagine, that was not exactly the best uh, time to practice architecture. <laughs> there was more being destroyed than built. Uh, on the other hand, everything was changing in the way we related to our built environment, uh, the regimes of ownership, the meanings of buildings, the occupation, everything. Uh, And that uh, became something that drew me to study and, in a way, to uh, explain my own past, having grown up in a country that disappeared at the time.
0: So, Vladimir, uh, one of the things you've written about a lot in your career as a historian is socialist architecture. What exactly makes that kind of architecture socialist?
3: Well, uh, I get this question a lot. I would say that the only thing that's a distinguishing factor in uh, relation to uh, socialist architecture is the regime of ownership, that it does not belong to a larger capitalist environment of private uh, ownership of uh, land, uh, where architecture is considered primarily as real estate, but as Uh, especially in terms of housing, as a right, as a social good. Everything else is completely negotiable. Architectural styles, forms, materials, technologies, I can always throw at you the counter example (laughs) if you uh, want to get into an argument.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. So, so I think, kind of naively, when I think about socialist architecture, I picture a particular style that's got like lots of concrete and not many fancy decorations. Is that style uh, not socialist?
3: It's not uniquely socialist. Uh, You had the same style, which actually originated in post-war France and Britain, uh, being applied all over the world, including in this country. Uh, And if you look at the former socialist world, uh, there are all kinds of other styles in parallel or uh, prior or after that. The modernist avant-garde of the early 1920s uh, was something quite different as it originated in the Soviet Union, only to be replaced by Stalinist socialist realism, this very kind of pompous uh, historicist classical uh, style. Then we move uh, towards this, for the lack of better term, uh, brutalism of the 60s and the 70s. And then in the 1970s and 80s, we see a complete shift towards something that... In some ways, is very much akin w- to what was happening in this country. So, no, there's no, not a single style at all on the country.
2: So, this is something that interests me and confuses me a little bit, which is that on the one hand, there's no particular style that goes along with socialism, and right. So, socialist architecture can look like a lot of different things, and a lot of you know, a given architectural style, for example, those neoclassical buildings, can go along with different ideologies. But on the other hand, it seems like some things, some architectural features are really suited to certain movements. For example, the the huge staircase that the dear leader looks down uh, from uh, onto the adoring public. That seems really well suited to a certain kind of authoritarianism. And as Churchill was saying about the Houses of Parliament, the structure of a debate chamber seems pretty well suited to democracy. Do you believe in that at all? Do you believe there are some architectural features that are very well suited to some ideologies?
0: Mm,
3: not really. <laughs> uh, I think they, the, the way in which we use architecture uh, can vary greatly. Uh, yes, authoritarianism might prefer forms that uh, highlight hierarchy, that highlight uh, distance. On the other hand, just look at the uh, Capitol Hill, right? And the enormous stairs on the Capitol <laughs> Hill uh, that are associated with a building that's supposed to represent democracy. So as, as I said, I will always find a counter in- example <laughs> <laughs> to, to uh, uh, go against your, your uh, argument.
2: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about the political nature of architecture with Vladimir
0: Kulich from Iowa State University. Do you ever wish that your city were designed to serve people better? When you go sightseeing, do you think about the politics of historic buildings? Can beautiful architecture embody a troubling ideology? Form, function, and fascism? Along with your comments and questions, when Philosophy
2: Talk continues.
0: Working, working, you visit,
2: Could buildings make life easier for everyone? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything
0: except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're asking whether architecture can be political, with Vladimir Kulich from Iowa State University. Today's episode
2: is generously sponsored by the Global Studies Program at Stanford University. And you can join Vladimir and other panelists for a conversation about Monuments to Nostalgia on Friday, October 27th at 12 noon Pacific, part of the Global Dialogue series. More information about this online event at the Global Studies website, sgs.stanford.com.
0: So, Vladimir, earlier Josh and I were discussing the politics of architecture. He said it's always political, and I disagreed. So which one of us is right?
3: Well, it depends on the perspective. Uh, from the perspective of a fish in the water, uh, you can claim that your little house is your private thing uh, that has not much to do with a broader political system. Uh, but to use that uh, well-known uh, philosophical phrase, uh, I would argue that architecture is always already political. The fact that you have a plot of land to build uh, a house is absolutely the product of a very particular uh, political uh, system that there's a certain system of labor uh, that's necessary to build the house, uh, adds to that, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the trick with architecture that makes it very uh, complicated uh, to study is that it's political in many fundamental uh, ways. Uh, We uh, usually think about the representational qualities of architecture, uh, that uh, architectural styles and forms, uh, et cetera, are meant to uh, send certain political messages at us, right? Think about all of the institutions, monuments, and so on. But there are other really important ways in which architecture acts politically.
0: So what are some of those ways?
3: Well, first, as I said, you need to build architecture on the land, right? And the way how we own and use uh, and distribute land is is, uh, fundamentally uh, political. Uh, Architecture structures the way in which we live, right? It sort of organizes us. It, it sets boundaries or opens up possibilities for a movement, which is also a fundamentally political question, especially on the level of the city, on the urban level. Uh, and then also, architecture is a deeply material practice that depends on certain regimes of uh, labor, right? And is embedded much more so than any kind of other field of culture production in uh, the world of economy. And of course, economy and politics are uh, very, very closely related to each other, right? So that's another really important aspect.
2: So what if we could divide uh, types of architecture into sort of three categories, where, where one is Real overt, overtly political stuff, right? The kind of architecture that's basically only political and is clearly stating something like a monument, for example, or or a war memorial or a pyramid or something like that. Um, And then the second category, architecture that's also political, right, so that um, it's not designed to be political like a monument is but as you were saying a moment ago look you know the the way it's built where it's built what kinds of movement it allows or doesn't allow public housing schools prisons and then a third category where maybe it's not political or it's really lightly political which would be like ray's cul-de-sac example from the beginning you you build your little cottage at the end of a cul-de-sac, it's not there as a monument <laughs> for people to come and admire. Um, so does that seem like a, a good division of things, you know, going from things that are really in your face, this is the ideology of the state, this is what we want to believe, all the way down to, well, yeah, it matters that there's private ownership of land and it matters that there are people who are paid to build it and so on. But it's not as directly in-your-face political as the, as the monuments.
3: Mm, Hmm, that's a... I would say that's a good attempt, <laughs> uh, but again, right? The counterexamples are always uh, the ones that spoil uh, the story. Here's a counterexample, <laughs> directly from my own uh, experience and my own research. This is something that I, I have I have uh, written about. The one thing that, in terms of uh, architecture production, has attracted worldwide attention from my part of the world, from Eastern Europe, but especially from from... from the former Yugoslavia are the monuments to World War uh, II which also conflated uh, the commemoration of Socialist Revolution and so on and so forth. Uh, this is making the rounds, has been making the rounds uh, in the social media, in various uh, photographic monographs and, and so on for more than, than a decade, well over uh, a decade. And usually the theoretical explanation, the interpretation attached to uh, these uh, images of these buildings is precisely your first category, that these are the ultimate political political monuments that buttressed uh, the regime and that there are now empty uh, uh, forms that mean nothing because uh, that political regime has disappeared. Maybe to some degree that is uh, true. On the other hand, these monuments are commemorate huge numbers of actual deceased people. And to a lot of people, uh, these monuments are really uh, important in their personal lives because their uh, family members, their friends, etc., et cetera, uh, would have been commemorated by them. In- these include even uh, monuments to uh, concentration camps. So these things are always very closely intertwined. It's very, very difficult to, to uh, separate them. So I don't think that this sort of uh, attempt to uh, define degree of political engagement in architecture always works.
0: I really like that point, and I have, I have a counterexample from uh, another direction, which is I, I grew up in the suburbs, and the suburbs are kind of easily drivable to the city, but you can't get public transportation <laughs> where mm-hmm. I grew up <laughs> very easily. Uh, There are all these like very similar houses that are designed for nuclear families, and so people think of that as not political, but those both seem like really politically loaded choices that are kind of traced back to things like the invention of the automobile and Henry Ford trying to sell a bunch of automobiles. So I I would argue that uh, the differences go the other way too.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, if we push further in that uh, direction, uh, the emergence of American suburbia was. First of all, enabled by this, as you mentioned, uh, Henry Ford, by the American industry pushing the state towards the creation of the uh, highway uh, system. And then the much darker side to it is that the suburbia, as they were originally conceived in the 1950s, uh, late 40s and and the 50s, were also very exclusionary and more specifically on the racial basis. So this is a fundamentally... uh, political aspect of that seemingly innocuous, neutral type of architecture, which is anything but political.
2: Okay, but come on, Vladimir. Earlier, you were saying that there's no particular one-to-one relationship between an architectural style and an ideology. Aren't you saying something a little bit different right now?
3: Not really, because when you look at suburbia in terms of style, you have all kinds of you have an entire world of of styles. If you just look at the Levitt Town, right, the prototype of American suburbia, the Levitt Company was selling houses in different styles, right. In a way, it is sort of just addressing on a very particular form of the inhabitation and ownership and production, right, where style is. Really something that, you know, is is the flimsiest, the the most ephemeral part of the building and of of the larger architectural system.
0: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about architecture and politics with Vladimir Kulich from Iowa State University. Vladimir, your your point about the kind of racism of a lot of suburban design, at least in its origin. Uh, Kind of raises another big question for me, which is, uh, does stuff like city planning and the placement of, of highways, does that count as architecture too? Is that part of the stuff whose politics we're arguing about right now?
3: that's a great question, you know uh, you brought up uh, at the beginning of our conversation the issue of architecture's utopian potential right This is my now interpretation of what you said uh, earlier that architecture has the potential to change the world and it was for a long time uh, sort of a structuring uh, uh, motivation for a lot of what we now call modern architecture that emerged at the turn of the uh, 20th century. Architecture is really a a, a tool for creating a better uh, world. Uh, The failure of of those attempts, right, the utopian aspirations of architecture have been condemned for the past uh, 50 uh, years, however, is not uh, necessarily, just a product of of architecture, but also of its specific application in different uh, political uh, systems.
2: Yeah, I mean that makes sense to me, and I, I, I'm I'm certainly convinced by you that um, uh, first of all that some architecture that was designed with maybe good intentions didn't live up to those intentions, but also that much architecture wasn't designed with good intentions or perhaps wasn't designed with enough thought at all. And some of the things I think about in this context are, for example, high-rise buildings for, for full of low-income apartments, like the Grenfell Tower in London, was a case in you know, my home country. I think about quite a lot where there was a big fire and 72 people died. And you know, it seems like in a case like that, um, the quality of the architecture itself, the quality of the building materials that's sending a pretty strong signal about the values of the society of what you know where people where the state is choosing to invest its resources.
3: Does that seem like a good example to you vladimir uh Absolutely, Grenfell Tower is a really kind of notorious case. But the question is, uh, who, uh, where do we assign the blame? Right, because Mm -hmm. the Grenfell Towers fire, uh, we really need to look into details. Right, the Grenfell uh, Tower fire was due to a very particular insulation that was chosen at the moment of uh, uh, renovating uh, the tower and chosen because it's cheaper, right? Even though, as it appeared later, it was known that it was not uh, 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 the best thing to use. Uh, Here's another uh, example uh, that goes in line uh, with this kind of... uh, widespread condemnation of modern architecture and of high-rise towers uh, uh, in relation to social uh, housing. Pruitaigo, perhaps uh, the most uh, notorious example of modernist uh, housing complex uh, falling uh, apart. Right, Puritaigo uh, in St. Louis uh, was a famous uh, neighborhood uh, designed uh, by Minori Yamasaki, a Japanese-American uh, architect uh, who would later go on to build the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers in, in uh, New York, uh, a modernist uh, housing uh, built in order to resettle uh, the uh, segregated uh, African-American uh, neighborhood that eventually, uh, pretty much uh, socially collapsed, uh, became uh, unusable uh, as architecture and so on, and in the early 1970s was uh, touted as the uh, its destruction in 72 when the state des- eventually des- decided to destroy it, was touted as the moment when modern architecture uh, died. As you know, this myth. Survived for a very long time uh, until finally scholars and very importantly filmmakers started looking uh, into this uh, question. And it turned out that the uh, collapse of the Proitaigo was uh, really the product of uh, the state withdrawing uh, the funding for uh, maintenance, uh, which led to. Uh, pipes bursting, to elevators not working, to uh, corridors being uh, dark, and uh, so on. Uh, So again, it's a fundamentally political question where the failure is not about the architect's part. It's about how we uh, relate to uh, architecture in political terms.
0: So... If you have a working architect who's trying to make design decisions about a building like this and they think the people paying for the project or commissioning the project uh, have really questionable ideas, how much responsibility do they have to push back and how much responsibility do they have to deliver what they've been told to deliver?
3: Well one thing that I tell to my students is that uh, architects cannot stop being citizens and that they uh their responsibility towards society does not stop when they uh Uh, acquire a commission uh, for uh, a building. And in that sense, uh, it can be very difficult to practice. Uh, And some architects will uh, refuse to uh, design uh, projects that they uh, consider unethical. Others might be uh, willing to do so. Others might be pushed uh, by economic economic pressures to do so, which is again kind of a a political pressure uh, as well so it's a tough uh, situation uh, you know architects for a very long time uh, because of these this utopian impulse that emerged with uh, modernism uh, sort of uh, f- uh, thought that they can actually change uh, the world but uh, I very often argue that they really need to get off of their uh, high horse uh, because the responsibility is not only on them them, what they design is going to be uh, embedded in the broader political economic system and used in all kinds of uh, unpredictable ways. That said, society also perhaps needs to start listening more to to what the architects say and conversely stop blaming them for all of the failures of architecture, again, because it is often the product of uh, 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 broader pressures. You're listening to Philosophy
2: Talk. Today we're asking, can architecture be political, with Vladimir Kulich from Iowa State
0: University. What would architecture look like in a truly egalitarian world? How should the authorities go about redesigning our landscape? Can architects change our political future? Building
2: a future that's good for everybody. Plus commentary from Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. If it's your house in the middle of your street, is there anything political
0: about it? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Vladimir Kulich from Iowa State University, and we're thinking about architecture and politics. Today's episode is generously sponsored by the Stanford Global Studies Programme. So, Vladimir, there's a thing we like to do every so often
2: on this show, and that's make our guest the czar of something or other. So, today, with the powers vested in us by KLW uh, Public Radio, we're going to make you czar of architectural design. What's the first thing you're going to change as czar to help bring about a better future?
3: Ooh, that's a tough question (laughs) because I'm not sure uh, what the czar's powers are. You know, uh, uh, as I've been trying to sort of uh, uh, argue throughout this conversation, architecture is so deeply embedded in the broader uh, cultural economic uh, system that to really fundamentally change uh, the way we inhabit the world would uh, require the changes that go far beyond uh, just the question of architectural design. That said, you know, if we just consider the current political uh, and economic uh, system, uh, there are some little changes that we could perhaps try to uh, enforce, starting with perhaps not. Making architecture hostile, which is often the case. Right, we often see this in in public space where there are little spikes uh, on uh, horizontal surfaces or uh, uh, armrests arm on uh, benches to prevent people from uh, sleeping on them. Uh, I would say uh, we could sort of extrapolate this uh, on a larger scale and make cities more permeable, less enclosed, uh, less hostile to, to uh, outsiders, uh, and so on. And uh, one thing that really uh, would greatly change the situation in this country would be uh, uh, amping up significantly uh, the investment in uh, public housing.
0: That all sounds uh, really great, Vladimir. Uh, I'm wondering, do architects have the power to make these changes? And if not, who does have the power to make them?
3: Well, I would say that architects, first of all, need to embrace uh, the fact that they are are at the same time uh, citizens, and that they need to work on both fronts of designing better buildings, but also creating conditions for the design of better uh, building, so, in some ways, uh, architects themselves need to get more politically uh, engaged here 's a, a, a current example something that every architectural school school in the United States and probably in most of the world uh, teaches now and uh, is at the center really of our pedagogical efforts is the question of our relationship towards the environment, how we use the resources, how we uh, uh, create buildings that are going to help us deal with the climate change and and uh, so on. This is something where the uh, entire profession is uh, putting a lot of uh, efforts. Uh, on the other hand, the way in which this question is, is understood is often technolo- uh, reduced to the technological uh, dimension. And the question, as we know, is uh, ultimately, fundamentally uh, political. So rather than architects just focusing on inventing new design techniques and technologies to make buildings more more sustainable, I would argue that they also really need to get more political about uh, pushing uh, the system towards creating better conditions for producing a more sustainable built environment.
0: So if I'm just one person trying to, like, fight with my employer, I'm probably not going to get very far. So if you've got one architect who says, I refuse to design hostile benches, the employer might just fire you and hire somebody else to do it. So it seems like some kind of collective bargaining will be really helpful. Are there efforts underway among architects to, to band together and kind of... Uh, agree on, on methods for, for making the world better?
3: Well, yes, and on multiple fronts. And in, in a way, you suggested the form of unionizing, right? Yeah. And this is something that in the uh, past decade or so has become uh, a, a, a burn, one of the burning topics in the architectural profession where it has started dawning on on, on architects that they are uh workers too uh, we have seen this kind of fundamental shift over the uh past couple of centuries where uh from kind of the figure of the gentleman architect who uh, is already independently wealthy and practices architecture as a, as a hobby uh, towards increasing uh, professionalization uh, and the decreasing sort of uh, uh, social and cultural status of, of architects, where now most of, of, of people are employed in large uh, offices and uh, are really workers, uh, laborers, and this sort of class consciousness. Uh, is something that uh, in a way is developing among architects. On the other hand, uh, the architects in this country at least do have an organization, the American Institute of Architects, that uh, has been pushing for uh, changes both in terms of the status of of uh, the architecture profession for uh, greater inclusivity of the profession as well as a better relationship towards the environment and in, in which in which uh, we build these efforts uh, sometimes falter, uh, but there is a kind of a growing uh, sense within the profession, I would say that it needs to become more uh, uh, politically conscious and active.
2: I, I'm in favor of all these measures, right? So, uh, using more environmentally responsible materials, making buildings uh, open to more people, more accessible, um, thinking about the impact on the community, all of these things. But I have to say, you know, part of my uh, the hopeful vision of the future includes there being apolitical architecture, there, there being spaces for architecture that isn't really about ideology and and really is just there to be beautiful, you know, like th- to think about the autonomy of art. And, what, and and I say this not just, you know, as a namby-pamby professor of literature, uh, but also also for political reasons, because you think about what uh, Theodore Adorno uh the the frankfurt school philosopher said about art generally he said but look it's basically the the one tiny island in the sea of capitalism that's kind of holding out against all of the purposefulness all of you know capitalism's drive to make everything useful right and and sort of economically uh advantageous and, and it reminds us what freedom could be like so so i i'm with adorno in thinking You know what that's one of the things we should protect even for political reasons protect a space for their being things that are beautiful just for the sake of beauty i think that's that's one of the reasons why you see in war sometimes you know an aggressor refusing to bomb certain buildings in another country because they are architecturally important and beautiful if they really were only about their political significance, you'd think they'd be the first thing that got bombed. So what do you think, Vladimir? Should, could we still make a little bit of a space for the, you know, just for the aesthetic, for the aesthetic in our thinking about architecture?
3: Oh yes absolutely uh, no doubt uh, about about that uh and you are absolutely right to describe uh you know to bring up Adorno and this idea of the little oasis that uh, show us the possibility of a a different world and that is that is where uh really the potential of good design uh lies under certain uh circumstances uh on the other hand. Uh, you know, if we uh, uh, keep our eyes uh, on uh, these small prizes, right, the question is, do we let everything else be taken over by uh the instrumental rationality of capitalism (laughs) (laughs) that that uh uh, kind of minimizes these little uh, these little oases and the question is also who has access to these little oases of of uh beauty that's that's another uh important uh aspect uh, that's fundamentally political too
0: so in in the topic of who has access, we haven't really talked about disability access for architecture yet. Um, in the US, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act kind of revolutionizing how stuff gets built. You know, it's not perfect, but it's, it's uh, I think, affected things like curb cuts and elevators and hallway sizes. What do you think is is the best direction forward for making sure like all kinds of bodies can access spaces?
3: Well, here's another fundamentally political question too, right? I am not a specialist on this question and I'm a bit uh, anxious to get into this discussion because I have very good friends my very good friend Val- der Lieberman uh in Oklahoma is a is this specialist on this topic uh have really uh worked on uh, this uh for a long time and have uh studied it very very carefully uh ADA of course is now one of the Requirements in architectural education and in practice uh, as as well, but it can also be uh, criticized for all kinds of ways in which it uh, in itself excludes some bodies that that were not that were not considered uh, in it. So this is absolutely a developing uh, discourse and a developing consideration in. Uh, in the architectural uh, profession. And I imagine that we will be seeing uh, even more uh, discussions in the uh, coming years. I hope that's true. And, uh, you know, of course, we've
2: got so many questions in front of us. There's sort of these burning questions in relation to architecture and politics. For example, uh, Confederate monuments. What do we do with those? Um, names on buildings. Do you have any thoughts about the sort of the, the very burning uh, questions of the day around uh, issues like that?
3: Well, you know, these are fundamentally political questions that are uh, for everyone, not just uh, for me as an architectural historian, because uh, they uh, really concern our status as uh, citizens. Uh, uh, And these are uh, uh, the questions uh, where... uh, these cracks emerge that really gives us the view uh, into uh, how architecture is political in the most uh, obvious uh, way. So uh, I'm glad that you brought them up because I think in a way they are really making my point about how architecture is uh, always political. Vladimir, this conversation has been both useful and
2: beautiful, just like a good building. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Our guest has been Vladimir Kulic, Professor of Architecture in the College of Design at Iowa State University and editor of Toward a Concrete Utopia, Architecture in Yugoslavia 1948 to 1980, an exhibition he also helped
0: curate, the Museum of Modern Art. So, Ray, what are you thinking now? I'm thinking that when I walk down the street today, I'm just going to look at all the buildings and I'm going to think about how they got there and how they affect people's lives and maybe how I might design them better if I were in charge of them.
2: I agree. I had exactly the same thought thinking about this stuff, that it sort of opens up the built environment to us in a totally different and really important way. Um, So, wow, what a great guest. We're going to put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes.
0: And on Friday, October 27th at 12 p.m., you can join the Stanford Global Studies Program for an online event in their Global Dialogues series, Monuments to Nostalgia. This event will feature today's guest, Vladimir Kulich. More information at the Stanford Global Studies website, sgs.stanford.edu. Now,
2: a monument to speed if ever there was one, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher.
1: Ian Shulls, a metaphor I've seen a lot. Inside politics is like learning what goes into a hot dog. It's not pretty. And yet we eat hot dogs and argue about whether it's okay to put ketchup on one. And suddenly it's not just politics. It's politics with mustard or get out. Architecture, like other arts, is not immune from this, especially if you get a building named after you when you retire from the Senate. A building also represents the city where the building occurs, so it's partisan in that sense. The Empire State Building comes to mind. I suppose it could be rebranded, and the Yankees could be sold to Atlanta. The cold heart of prosperity is displayed either way. Wrigley Field still stands, but other stadiums come and go. Both Raiders and A's wanted a new stadium in Oakland, though the one they had seemed fine to me. I mean, Rome still has the same Coliseum. It's been a few thousand years. What did the Gladiators want, you know? Anybody ask them? Apropos, why don't Oakland fans keep the stadium and form their own pickup teams from the hood? I mean, really? Do you want an Oakland team or a bunch of faint-hearted dopes just there for the money? They all went to Vegas anyway. A city full of secular cathedrals, none of which has a team, just slot machines. Don't even take coins anymore. Slot machines used to be little cathedrals where quarters live. Not anymore. You're playing with Bitcoin, I think. if you win, you're paid in NFTs, I think. So casinos have an implicit political statement about how capitalism works in the end times. Soviet Russia and early 20th century West were famous for ugly buildings made out of concrete housing intellectuals, factories, bureaucrats, and political prisoners. Later, America tried to go the one better by applying the so-called liberal values to architecture and creating high-rise forests of substandard housing for poor people of color. Of course, some were grateful for a roof over their heads, even though the elevator was broken and they lived in the 12th floor. Christians have traditionally built huge churches, many with flying buttresses. Otherwise, the weight of the ceiling would make the cathedral collapse. Now we have mega-churches, which are carved-out Walmarts wired for sound and video, I think. Soviets also replaced churches with buildings of their own design so people could get married without the religion part, which just gets in the way of the new world role-building together, unless you're in prison, which, of course, is a panopticon to save on surveillance cameras. Well, that won't catch on here. We like our true crime shows too much, which couldn't even exist without massive surveillance footage. The West is big on prisons, too, but not so much on skyscrapers anymore. We leave that to the Arabs, who think that Dubai might become a tourist destination. 110 degrees last week. Bring the kids. The West focuses now on stadia, Every town worth its salt has one. Until the earth catches fire, we'll probably keep building Stadia. Big churches are like, hey, God, look what we made. Stadia are more like, hey, other cities, look what me made. We have a volleyball franchise. Elsewhere, we downsize. We monetize our cars, our homes. We have buildings that are or look like shipping containers where you can buy curated locally grown sandwiches from youth with sketchy beards. Also, not to beat this dead horse, but if your town has a basketball franchise, what do you do when the team wants a new stadium in this downsized world so they just move to Vegas where Stadia grow where grass does not? Well, the heat will do them in soon enough. In the meantime, what do you do with your white elephant? The circus is dead. Rock concerts are dying. Monster trucks, I guess. Beauty pageants. Prison camps. Yeah, take a page from Pinochet. Trump might be president again. Trump Tower is kind of sad, really. No place for an auto de fe. We might be heading back to those days in a secular kind of way, of course. Whatever Trump doesn't want to look at right now, put him in the stadium. Poke him with sharp sticks. Charge money. Pay-per-view. Sell souvenirs. Every town will have one. Just a way to make money until the teams come crawling back. Or maybe you could start a pickleball franchise. Whatever the hell that is, got to go. Philosophy Talk is a
2: presentation of KALW San Francisco Bay Area and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2023.
0: Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research.
2: Thanks also to Jamie Lee, Elizabeth Zhu, Emily Huang, Merle Kessler, and Angela Johnston.
0: Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode comes from the Stanford Global Studies Program.
2: And from the members of KLW Local Public Radio San Francisco, where our program originates.
0: The views expressed or mis-expressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation
2: continues on our website, philosophytalk.org where you can become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy.
0: And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening.
2: And thank you for thinking.
0: The dream of transforming Howard Terminal into a new Oakland A's stadium complex just got thrown a new curveball.